turn with me this morning to 2 Samuel, either in your own Bibles or uh, page 255 in one of those blue Bibles in front of you, or uh, in your bulletins this morning. We're going to look at Samuel, uh, 2 Samuel 2 in just a moment. If you were with us last week or if you were not with us last week, we began uh, our, our study of 2 Samuel, and in that first chapter as we considered it, we had a picture of David learning of a battle that just took place with Israel. And in that battle, uh, and in the description of what he heard, we learned uh, that Saul, Israel's first king, has died, uh, along with a number of his sons, uh, along with a number of Israel as well, and Israel fled. So David has just received that news that Israel's first king and the Lord's anointed was dead in a battle with the Philistine. And in addition to that, Jonathan, uh, Saul's son, Jonathan, David's dear friend, uh, had been killed in that battle as well, and Israel had fled. In the first chapter, we saw David's reaction to that news as it comes to him. David grieves this loss and composes a lament that is to be taught to all the people in Judah. And the refrain that ran through that lament that we considered last week was how the mighty have fallen. And what we saw is that how the mighty have fallen is not just a phrase that we're supposed to look at and look at how kings die or kings' sons die and think about it on the level of, of people in powerful positions, but it actually is a lesson for all of us. All of us are supposed to look at those things and go, if that happens to them, that can happen, that will ultimately happen to me as well. How then do I live? How do I take this to heart? Uh, if we're in the house of mourning, how do I take these hearts to death? We found then, David, at the end, when the song has been composed, when it's been recorded for us, the lament has been given to us, David is in this situation. A crown, Saul's crown, has been handed to him. The armlet signifying Saul's kingship now has been handed to him. A vacancy exists within Israel. There's no king now in Israel right now. And it leaves David with a question. What do I do now? What am I supposed to do right now in this situation? And that's where we pick up with the word of God in verse 1. I'll just read 11 verses for us of this chapter this morning. After this, David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go up into any of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said to him, Go up. And David said, To which shall I go up? And he said, To Hebron. So David went up there, his two wives also, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David brought up his men who were with him, every one with his household, and they lived in the towns of Hebron. And the men of Judah came, and there they anointed David king, over the house of Judah. When they told David, it was the men of Jabesh-Gilead who buried Saul, David sent messengers to the men of Jabesh-Gilead and said to them, may you be blessed by the Lord because you showed this loyalty to Saul, your Lord, and buried him. Now may the Lord show steadfast love and faithfulness to you, and I will do good to you because you have done this thing. Now therefore... Let your hands be strong, 
and be valiant, for Saul, your Lord, is dead, and the house of Judah has anointed me king over them. But Abner, the son of Ner, commander of Saul's army, took Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and brought him over to Mahanaim. And he made him king over Gilead and the Asherites and Jezreel and Ephraim and Benjamin and all Israel. Ishbosheth, Saul's son, was 40 years old when he began to reign over Israel, and he reigned two years. But the house of Judah followed David. And the time that David was king in Hebron over the house of Judah was seven years and six months. Let's pray. Great God in heaven, we thank you for your word, and we pray that uh, we, your people, living 3,000 years plus after these events are recorded, would, by the power of your Spirit, who authored them and preserved them, hear you today. That this would not be seen by us just as some uh, ancient history lesson for the sake of history, but instead, as your word to your people this day, help us to listen to you. We pray this in Jesus, your son's name. Amen. Well, I did not choose, and I said some of this last week, I did not choose to preach on this book because of uh, the current events, certainly the current events as they've gone on in Great Britain with the death of Queen Elizabeth II and the accession of Charles, well, now King Charles III to the throne. But it really does provide us with a little bit of interesting insight, at least contemporary insight, into these moments and their significance. We all got a glimpse at how much everyone paid attention to what has taken place in uh, Great Britain over the course of, uh, of the last month now. And perhaps it helps us to see these things. So it's a significant thing when you say, the queen is dead, long live the king. The queen is dead, long live the king. I, did you find yourself saying that when you heard that news? That was the first thing out of my mouth. I happened to be sitting next to Jay Signorino when I read the news and said, Jay, the queen is dead. Long live the uh, king. And then there's another phrase that's been said very much because, of course, this resulted in a change in, uh, in, in Great Britain's national anthem. No longer was the national anthem to be God save our queen, but now God save the king. Now, both of those things, long live the king and God save the king, both of them are biblical phrases. They didn't just come out of the air. Uh, they're actually biblical phrases. So when Saul was first anointed king, that was back in 1 Samuel chapter 10, when he is anointed king, all the people who are there around uh, at that particular moment shout out, long live the king. And in Psalm 20, a psalm of David, uh, when you get to that, that's a psalm of David. It's a royal psalm. It's a prayer for the king. And that psalm concludes with, oh, Lord, save the king, or God, save the king. So these phrases for us reflect not only the importance of a king, they do. They help, they help us to see how important the position of a monarch is, be it a king or uh, be it a queen in the case of Great Britain. But it helps to show us the connection between the sovereign and his people, or again, England, the sovereign and her people. There is an interdependent, inseparable, inseparable 
and reciprocal relationship between the king and the people. And we kind of got this from the moment of Saul's inauguration, just by way of reminder. So from the moment of Saul's inauguration, we saw that Israel was basically saying, we want to have a king so that we can be like the people who are around us. The, the nature of the relationship, the closeness of the relationship, is seen in its very inception. It's the people who declare this. And as we look at the words of Samuel and the words of the Lord in context, we see that this is a rejection of God's kingship over them. And so we kind of look at this and we look at Saul's installation into that office as the people's choice, their vision of a king, and and we can kind of sense that it's doomed from the outset, that as soon as we see the way this thing has started, we know that it's going to be bad. And so it is not surprising to us then when we read of this defeat that that, that just took place to the Philistines, and, and we see that in Saul's downfall, in the fall of the mighty, is also the people's downfall because those things are linked together. There's a relationship between those things that you just can't separate. You can't just pluck out Saul and everything remains the same. Instead, as the king goes, so goes the people as well. There is that kind of relationship. Saul falls, and we sing the song then, How the Mighty Have Fallen. But waiting in the wings is God's choice for kingdom establishment. So we've seen man's choice for kingdom establishment, and he fell on his sword and was dead. Now we see God's choice for kingdom establishment, his anointed one. And so here in this chapter, well, I guess to some extent in the last chapter as well, but in this chapter and then for the rest of 2 Samuel, we're going to see the rise and the ascent and the establishment of the Davidic line. And it is the Davidic line that will, of course, ultimately take us up to Jesus Christ himself, Jesus the Son, of whom it is said, he will sit on the throne of his father David, reign over Jacob's house forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Now, I'm quoting there words that you're probably familiar with, right? Those are the words of Gabriel in the Annunciation to Mary. This is who he is. He is going to be the son of David and reign on the throne of David. And it's right here in this text that the reign of David, that the line of David is established in Israel. And of course, our New Testaments begin in this exact place, right? Our New Testaments begin with this, these words. This is the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. And so, the, so the, the significance of the event before us takes us immediately, directly, no detours to it. It's going directly to Christ and to understand the establishment of Christ upon the Davidic throne. Long live the king was the cry for Saul. It's now going to be the cry for David. And of course, it's the cry for us for Christ as well. So we begin David's then accession in this passage that is here, and we get our first glimpse into the kind of king and the kind of kingdom as we're kind of summoned. We are called, we are invited into allegiance with the king. The passage that is before us today, and I, I want you to have it open in front of you because it lays out really nicely for us and we can work our way through it in the three sections that are probably the paragraph divisions uh, in your Bible if you've got your Bibles open. So we'll look at 
kind of one to four here, and then four to seven, and then eight to 11 as the last section. So, so I want us to look at this and consider this in the accession of David. Verse one is incredibly important. The question, as I've said, was, okay, what do I do now? What does David do next? That's the question, and he doesn't answer it himself. Verse one, after this, David inquired of the Lord. Shall I go up into any of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said to him, Go up. And David said, To which shall I go up? And he said, To Hebron. I don't want us to read by that too quickly. The significance of this is this. David prayed. David sought the Lord. He sought the Lord. He sought the will of the Lord, probably through Abiathar the priest, who's not mentioned here, but who I'll read some sections about in uh, just a moment. Now, by way of reminder, if we were going back into 1 Samuel, we have seen two sides of David. On the one hand, we have seen the side of David when he is confronted either with a difficult situation or with a potential situation that exists. We've seen him act out of his own resources. We've seen him act impulsively. And sometimes, oftentimes, he was protected ultimately by God or by God through other people in those circumstances, even though he acted rashly or thought rashly initially. Think, for example, uh, since she is mentioned in this passage, think of the situation with Nabal. Okay, so David gets the report that Nabal says, hey, I'm not going to help all of you and your men. And he goes, okay, that's it, off with his head. And he would have been guilty of blood guilt in Israel, except, except Abigail comes in and says, no, 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 don't do this thing. And she, if you will, saves David from himself. It's the Lord who prepared all of that, but she saves David from his own impulse. But we have also seen another side of David. And it is the same side of David that we have seen in the past that we see in this passage right here. Let me give you two examples of this. You don't have to turn there. You can just listen to these. But 1 Samuel chapter 23, just listen to these verses. Verse 9, David knew that Saul was plotting harm against him. And he said to Abiathar the priest, bring the ephod here. So the ephod, that part of the priestly garment that helps them to discern the will of God. Then David said, O Lord, the God of Israel, your servant has surely heard that Saul seeks to come to Calah to destroy the city on my account. Will the men of Calah surrender me into his hand when Saul comes down? David sought the Lord. David inquired of the Lord through Abiathar the priest. Now, David, we don't read that he sought the Lord when he ended up serving uh, in the essentially, with the Philistines at the end of 1 Samuel. But what we did see is a turn in David in uh, chapter 30 that was significant, and it's the same one that's marked out here. Chapter 30 of 1 Samuel, verse 7, And David said to Abiathar, the priest, the son of Ahimelech, Bring me the ephod. So Abiathar brought the ephod to David, and David inquired of the Lord, Shall I pursue this band? Shall I overtake them? And he answered him, Pursue, for you shall surely overtake them. That was when the Amalekite raiders had come in and taken his family, taken the families of his men and all of the spoils along with them. The the point is this. The same thing is recorded here, and this is not an incidental comment made by our narrator, the teller of this story at all. 
the, the, the idea of this is clear, that David is at his best when he deliberately, when he carefully seeks out the will of the Lord God for what he should do in any particular circumstance. And of course, in what we see here, God then directs him to return to Judah. Now, you don't have to get out your maps right now, but it's important just to a little bit understand the geography of what's taking place here. Remember that David, as he's processing all of this, is in Ziklag. Ziklag is in the very southern portion of the country. It's down right on the border with the Philistines, so it's down here. And Hebron is up here. Hebron is in the land of Judah. Judah is David's tribe. David is of the tribe of Judah, and the Lord says, return to Judah and stay in Hebron, a key city that is there. And what we are to understand by this then is the nature of David's accession. We already know, and we reviewed this last week, we already know from 1 Samuel that David did not get to the throne by taking the life of Saul by saying, I'm the anointed one, and it's time for me to reign, and it's time for me to eliminate Saul, because obviously God has put him into my hands. Twice, right? Twice there was the opportunity to do that. Once through his own hands, once through a servant who said, I'll take care of this. We can end this right now. We can establish your dynasty. David didn't do it. David didn't get to the kingdom in that way. And not only that, not only was David not involved in killing Saul, he wasn't involved in Saul's death in the battle with the Philistines. So we've been made very clear by our narrator that that battle took place up here. David, in the meantime, was way down here. He didn't have anything to do with the fact that Saul died. And when the report comes to him, he mourns instead of delighting in it. So what we're seeing here is this. Don't let it slip by. It's, it's intentionally given to us to show that David did not seize the kingship. David did not make a power grab in order to become the king. The significance of that is seen in the nature of the kingship of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Consider, and we could go many places, but consider just one passage as you think about this. Think about Philippians 2. And what does it say about Jesus? He did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant. Much is said there, right, about the type of kingship that God is looking for in the anointed one. God is not looking for one to reach out, seize the opportunity, seize the moment, and grab and take hold of the kingship, even though you've got the crown in your hand. Instead, God says, wait, wait, wait till I give this authority. Now, just take this back for just one second. Adam and Eve had been given a royal, regal standing by God in this world, and yet they reached out and they grasped for something that would make them like God. The people of Israel said, we want a king to be like everybody else. That's grasping at it. That's grasping at the blessings. That's grasping at the authority, whereas God's king will be appointed by God. It will not be taken. So David waits. David arrives in Hebron, 
and David is received and anointed as the king over Judah, the southern portion, the southern tribe. And, and just so we know, that's not a rejection of the anointing that Samuel earlier did. That's the, as others have said, that's the yay and amen. Okay, that's the yay and amen. We recognize that, David, you have been anointed by Samuel. You have been anointed by God to this office, and they anoint him there as king. Uh, Ralph Davis quotes Calvin commenting on this passage, and this just will bring it right home to us. Calvin writes this, Even though David clearly knew that God had constituted him as king and that Saul had trespassed, even though the time was ripe for him to enjoy the crown, nevertheless, he asked God to tell him what he should do. Why? Because although he was on the way, he still knew that he could err seriously if God did not guide him. Let us learn through all our life to go to the Lord, especially when we are facing an important decision. Let us find out what is to be done. Let us not be so self-assured that we fail to pray to God to show us what is useful and expedient. So there's a very simple lesson here. There's, there's a big thing going on, the establishment of the Davidic line, and a very simple lesson. When you are faced with the crossroads, when you are faced with the decision, make sure that you take it to the Lord. All right, this next section that is here for us, that's one through four. The next section, and I, at the end I'll pull all these sections together for us. The next section, though, is this discussion of what the people from Jabesh-Gilead had done. We get the quick synopsis of it there. When they told David it was the men of Jabesh-Gilead who buried Saul. And then we're going to get the, the what happens after that, right after that. Now, I've got to give you a reminder. I'm going to read to you right now from 1 Samuel chapter 31 to remind you of what the men from Jabesh-Gilead did. I'm sorry, it is a brutal section, but it helps us to understand what's happening here. So, from verse 8, this is the close of 1 Samuel. The next day, when the Philistines came to strip the slain, they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. So they cut off his head and stripped off his armor and sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to carry the good news to the house of their idols and to the people. They put his armor in the temple of Ashtaroth, and they fastened his body to the wall of Bethshan. But when the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men arose and went all night and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Bethshan, and they came to Jabesh, and they burned them there, and they took their bones and buried them under the tamarisk tree in Jabesh, and fasted for seven days. That's the news. Okay, that, that's the news that David gets here of that thing that just took place there. This has been reported to David. He hears about this, and he sends messengers out to these men, out to this town, out to the men of Jabesh-Gilead. And he, in the first place, is commending their actions. You guys did a good thing, right? You, you did this thing for Saul. That's a good thing. In the second place, He's blessing them. He's praying that the Lord would bless them, but he's also committing himself to blessing them, saying, I will do good to you. I will do good to you because of this thing that you have done. And the third thing that he does, and maybe this is not obvious to us, but should now in, in speaking of this, he is inviting their allegiance without commanding their allegiance. 
Okay, inviting it without commanding it, and that's what happens in verse 7. This is the, the messengers are sent to Jabesh Gilead. Now, therefore, let your hands be strong and be valiant, for Saul, your Lord, is dead, the king is dead, and the house of Judah has anointed me king over them. Question mark. Question mark. What, what say you? What say you is the question that is hanging in the air after this moment right here. So two things are at play behind this scene, and they are neither uh, subtle nor are these two things self-contradictory. In the first place, David, in hearing this story, in, uh, in, in hearing about what these men of Jabesh Gilead did, he sees a lot that he likes. He sees a lot that he likes. In the first place, he, he likes their strength and the courage that they have demonstrated. They have demonstrated their uh, that, 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 that they are valiant men. And David goes, I like that. That's, that's kind of my people do that kind of thing. In the second place, he likes the fact that like himself, they didn't want to see the Philistines dancing in the street and celebrating the victory over Israel while Saul the Lord's anointed and his sons were being publicly shamed and they did something about it, right? So, so here's the line that we got in the end of 1 Samuel. Uh, they, they, they sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to carry the good news to the house of their idols and to the people. It was good news that Saul was hanging up on a wall. The men of Jabesh Gilead said, I don't like that. I don't like that one bit. And we're going to do something about it. Now, recall from the lament that we read last week, it's probably on the same page if you've got uh, uh, 2 Samuel 2 open there, verse 20. Verse 20, David wrote, Tell it not in Gath, Philistine city. Publish it not in the streets of Ashkelon, Philistine city, lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice, and lest the daughters of the uncircumcised exult. David says, Hey, they got the same heart that I have. I don't want to see that taking place. It's already taking place. I don't want to see it taking place. They didn't want to see it taking place, and they did something about it. Just like, by the Lord's will, I went and got the stuff back and our families back from the Amalekites. I did something about it, and so did these men here. But what he particularly likes here, what he particularly likes about these men, and it's clear in what we've just read here, is he likes their faithfulness and their loyalty to Saul. Now, understand this. It's not just that faithfulness and loyalty are good character traits and to be praised and praiseworthy character traits. They are, but that's not the main point here. The main point is the object of that faithfulness and that loyalty. Namely, they were faithful to the Lord's anointed. That's who Saul was. Saul is the Lord's anointed. So they are like David. David was faithful to the Lord's anointed. David wouldn't raise his hand up against the Lord's anointed when he had the opportunity. Unlike the Amalekite that we read about in the last chapter who raised his hand against the Lord's anointed, and David said whether he did or actually didn't, we don't know. That was his testimony that he did. And David says, you raised your hand against the Lord's anointed? That's the end for you. You can't do that. You can't stand against the Lord's anointed. You can't raise your sword against him. 
David wants such men of such towns to know this. I'm now the anointed king. And he wants them to say, the king is dead, long live the king. That's what he wants them to say. The king is dead, long live the king. Why? Why? Is David just selfish? No, it's because in saying the king is dead, long live the king, it is the thing that is most glorifying to God. The king is the king because he's the Lord's anointed. Because the Lord has appointed him. The Lord has anointed him. And so you honor Saul because of his Lord. The Lord appointed him and anointed him to be king. You honor David because he's the Lord's. Because the Lord anointed him as king. And so the thing that is most glorifying to God is when you honor the king that the Lord has appointed, that the Lord has anointed. It's most honoring to the Lord. That is what is best for them, that they would swear allegiance to the new king. It's best for Israel, and it is best for David as well. But there is something else happening here at the exact same time. And as I said before, it's not contradictory in any way to what I just said and the sincerity of it. But here's the reality, and if you know your Bibles, you've picked this up already in what we've read. The division of Israel between the north and the south is already much in evidence. Saul was was a Benjaminite. He was uh, from the northern parts of Israel. David was a southerner. Now, you you have to... kind of get the positioning here. So Judah, a tribe in the south, now David is going to be stationed from Ziklag up to Hebron here. And Benjamin, and where Saul's from, is up here. Jabesh Gilead is actually a tribe, part of the tribe of Manasseh, and it's on the east side of the Jordan River up north. And so what David is trying to do here is he's acting with wisdom as the new king, trying to bring the country together by reaching out to the north. He's trying to unite the people of God in allegiance to God's anointed. Uh, It is the equivalent of Jesus reaching out and saying this, and I am not the first to make this connection or this comment, so this is not a stretch in any way. It is the equivalent to Jesus standing and saying, come to me. Come to me, all you who are heavy laden, all you who labor and are heavy laden. Jesus is saying, not only come to me, all of those of you who are strong and valiant, but Jesus is saying, all of you who are burdened in this world, come to me. Why come to me? Because I'm the anointed one of the Lord. I'm the Christ. I'm the king whom God has established on his holy hill. Come to me, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Take my yoke upon you is take my kingship upon you. You need to take my kingship upon you, not because I'm a selfish king who's just looking for anybody to follow him and is going to try and make you get down. Take my yoke upon you because I'm gentle. I'm lowly. I'm humble in heart. You will find rest for your souls. That's that's an invitation from the king to come and do obeisance to him. All right, 
That's what's going on in that second section. Now, the last section, 8 through 11, is a reminder that this desired union of the people under one God-ordained, God-anointed king is not going to be without opposition and struggle. Right? So Abner, the commander of Saul's army, takes a remaining son of Saul, Ishbosheth, and makes him king over the tribes of the north. No, no words here about anointing. That's not used at all in here. But Abner makes Ishbosheth king of the tribes in the north, which will inevitably lead to a house divided against itself. Right? Warfare will result from this in Israel. It'll result from it in the immediate section that follows this, verse 12. If we just kept reading, we would see that the warfare immediately starts off as a result of this. It's as if the enemies from the outside weren't somehow enough, that the Philistines and the Amalekites and everybody else weren't somehow enough of enemy for the people of God. Now the people of God are going to fight against one another. Unity is not easy. It's clearly commanded that we, the people of God, be of one mind, that we be united in the faith, that we have the mind of Christ amongst us. But from the beginning until the end and to the return of our Lord, that unity, that union is going to be a struggle. And inevitably, what's going to happen is that people are going to oppose the kingdom of God. And sometimes that's going to be evident from the outside, and sometimes it will be from the inside as well. Sometimes it's the Philistines, and sometimes it's the northern tribes who would like to do things on their own, separately from everyone else. And that's why when, and we won't go into this in depth in any way right now, but that's why when Paul and Barnabas go around encouraging the churches, they tell them, continue in the faith, saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. How are you going to get into this kingdom that God has established? Well, through many tribulations. Why? Because that was true for the king, and it's true for the people. True for the king, true for the people. David didn't have a kingdom that went smoothly and nicely and everything. After this, everyone you know, lived happily ever after, and the kingdom increased, and everything went well. David was going to have tribulation to follow this. Our Lord Jesus Christ had tribulation. God's people will enter the kingdom of God through tribulation. God established David as king over Judah for seven years, and eventually we will see then over all of Israel. God the Father Almighty has established Jesus as king over all the earth. And so when you get down to it, then what this passage becomes is a call. It's, it's a summons. The call goes out to say, long live the king. God save the king to make our allegiance with the king. And if you think about this passage this way, it, it, it lays out really nicely. In the, in the first section, what you have are people who have given us an example of reception, receive the king. That's what the men of Judah did when David went up to Hebron. They received the king. In the last section, we're given an example of rejection. What did Abner and Ishbosheth and those other tribes do? They rejected God's anointed king. And in the middle of that sandwich of, of reception and of rejection, you have a question. A question. 
what are the men of Jabesh Gilead going to do? How are they going to respond? There's actually no response. We, we, don't, we don't have the response. We don't, we don't know what they said, how they responded to these emissaries that David sent up there. Uh, I, I think of this as a Rembrandt moment, as a Rembrandt staring out of the picture, kind of looking at the person who's looking at the picture going, and you? And you? How, what do you say to this? Follow the king, reject the king, the question is before us. Bow before the king, don't let anything stop you, and he will lift you up. Long live King Jesus. Lord, we pray with thanksgiving that you have given us the ability to say this. No one can say that Jesus is Lord except by the power of the Holy Spirit. It is a gift from you. You have granted it to us. We take no pride in ourselves being able to say that because it has been given to us by you to have life in the name of the King. We pray that you would make us to be a people who are ever grateful for that. And Lord God, if there are people here today who are questioning their allegiance or who have not aligned themselves with the King that you have established, oh Lord, may you grant them grace to do that right now to align themselves with Jesus, to pledge their allegiance to the Anointed One, to the King whom you have established. Whatever situation in which they find themselves, whether they be poor and needy, heavy laden, burdened, or whether they be strong and valiant, Lord, may all of us find our refuge in Him, in whose name we pray. Amen.